Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, so we're going to touch a little bit on the AppSite review regarding colorectal surgery and colorectal disease. It's Kevin and I today. Kevin, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I tried to drum up some interest on Twitter this morning, but it was un- unsuccessful. But uh, we'll try and give them the best review we can here. Come on there, listeners. Let's get going. Let's start to get the interaction going a little bit. So, Okay, so we got a general outline for you today that we're going to touch on. And again, a lot of these things, what we're trying to do is disclaimer. If you guys got a question, let us know. If something you've read, something or anything, shout, shout out at Twitter. Let us know. Email us. Go to the website. Do whatever you do. Um, this is by no means uh, has inside information or anything like that, but we're just trying to give you a little bit of a broad review in terms of colorectal disease. So, Kevin, let's start out a little bit. Let's talk about the basics of anatomy in this area. I always say when I give a lecture that the last five centimeters of the human GI tract is extremely confusing, and if you expand that to the rectum for that last 15 centimeters, sometimes it gets a little bit, a little bit more even confusing. So, let's bump up at a global overview. Let's talk about the anatomy overall of the colon. What are the portions of the colon? What is the blood supply to each of those portions? And then what are retroperitoneal, secondary retroperitonealized, if you will, or intraperitoneal? Okay, well, the colon is uh, generally divided into the ascending, transverse, descending, sigmoid, and uh, rectum. Um, and the vascular supply is the uh, SMA provides um, the vascular supply um, through the iliocolic, the right colic, and the middle colic up to the uh, transverse colon. And then when you start over at the splenic flexure, you have the um, branches of the inferior mesenteric artery coming in and supplying uh, down through um, the sigmoid um, with the, the left colic, the sigmoidal branches, and the superior rectal, which uh, supplies the very top of the rectum. And then the rectum has uh, multiple blood supplies. So it has the superior rectal, which is a branch of the inferior mesenteric artery. And then it has the middle rectal artery, which is a branch of the internal iliac. And then you have the inferior rectal artery, which is the branch of the um, internal pudendal, um, which is also another branch of the internal iliac. So, um, so really SMA, IMA, and a little bit of internal iliac for the rectum. And then for the retroperitoneal structures, generally it's thought that at least the posterior walls of the ascending and descending colon are uh, fixed in the retroperitoneum. Um, and then the rectum is primarily in the retroperitoneum. And then the transverse colon um, and parts of the sigmoid colon are intraperitoneal. Yeah, just to, just so that's a lot of information for everybody out there if you're trying to track along. Think about it like this. As the blood supply comes down, the question that comes up oftentimes, you know, on rounds or anything is that what part does that SMA do? And Kevin, you'd say, you said transverse colon, but let's be a little bit more specific in terms of it. It's, where's kind of the cutoff in the transverse colon? A little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, what is it? Uh, a little bit to the right is where you get the end of the SMA blood supply. Yeah, it's actually a little bit to the left for everybody out there. So it's two-thirds of the transverse colon are supplied by the SMA. So as that comes down, that middle colic branch will come up. It does. You're, you're right. It is 
it does supply the majority of the right, but it's the, the classic teaching is two-thirds of the transverse colon. Now, a little bit of this way, a little bit that way, we know that the anatomical variations, specifically when it relates to blood supply, are all over the map, but that's kind of the classic ones. Now, as you talk about, and I just want to make one finer detail point, with the rectum, we talk a little bit more about intraperitoneal rectum and extraperitoneal rectum. So it's really not the retroperitoneum that you'll talk about a lot. Extraperitoneal uh, rectum is obviously the area that's down towards the anus. It's below where the peritoneal reflection is. That peritoneal reflection can be a little bit all over the map, especially between men and women. A classic uh, kind of, you're looking through the rectum, you want to know roughly where is the uh, corresponding anatomical location to the intraperitoneal location, and that's the second rectal valve. That, that, that comes up a lot. And again, that is clinically important because if you have an anterior tumor and you want to know, can I do this full thickness and get in trouble if it's above the second rectal valve, then maybe that is going to be intraperitoneal. So these do have some clinical um, <clears throat> correlates that are important to do. So we talked a little bit more, and you hit it on the spot in terms of kind of the posterior wall be retroperitoneal for the ascending and descending colon. Kevin, let's jump back, and we'll talk a little bit about blood supply again. So we talked about the middle colic as that comes off the SMA and branches. We talk about, we know that there's a certain percentage of people that do have a formal right colic branch and don't, but we know that collateral blood supply is important to the colon and to the rectum. What are some of the collateral flow that goes to the colon? So when you think of the colon, you have the main blood supplies, the SMA and IMA. So they have two different collaterals um, that connect the SMA to the IMA. I think the primary one that a lot of us think of is the arc of Riolon, which is the direct connection um, that goes through the, the mesentery from the SMA to IMA. Um, and then you also have the uh, marginal artery, which kind of runs along uh, adjacent to the colon. Um, and this, actually, this also connects the SMA to the IMA. So we love, 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 love uh, eponyms. So what is uh, the different points uh, where collateral blood supply come together, the so-called watershed areas of the colon. Yeah, so Sudex point, which is at the rectosigmoid junction. Griffiths, oh, you know, I, my brother's name is Gary Steele, so I always think G is over S, Gary Steele, Griffiths, and Sudex. Uh, again, we all have our different ways to think about it. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line is in a lot of these things is that, you know, there are overlap supplies and that's, you know, that there are some other areas that are watershed points. And so at the splenic flexure where that kind of comes together, that's kind of called Griffith's point, uh, you know, some common areas of quote unquote ischemia. And then at the rectosigmoid junction, the sudex point, you know, the thought process there being due to decreased collateral blood flow. So, uh, one thing, sir, uh, one that relates to this that I've seen on uh, at least practice questions is they'll put a tumor in different parts of the colon and uh, they'll ask you what type of uh, resection should you do and what type of vessels are you taking. So sometimes they'll make it a little tricky and they'll put it up at the hepatic flexure um, and they want you to know what vessels you take for an extended right um, or an extended left. Um, so I think we should definitely cover that. Yeah, absolutely. And so... So, and then the, um, as you talked about the arc of Riolan, um, you know, the meandering mesenteric artery is another way that it's called. And then you get, you know, profuse collateral blood flow down to the rectum as it goes from the iliacs on both sides. And you kind of talked about that a little bit more, but um, those are all important things to do. So we talked about the arterial side of the house. So let's talk a little bit about the venous drainage. Now, the venous drainage comes into play. Um, how, Kevin, 
let's talk first about the colon, the primary venous blood supply to the colon, and then talk a little bit about where do the inferior rectal drains, uh, rectal veins drain, as opposed to the middle and superior. The primary uh, drainage of the colon is the uh, inferior mesenteric vein, and this drains uh, into the portal uh, venous system. But as you get down um, to the rectum and you're at the uh, inferior and uh, middle rectal veins, uh, these actually drain uh, into the internal iliac and then to the cava. So it actually skips a portal venous return. Yeah, and you know, a lot of times what we talk about is that, uh, again, focusing on a little bit, trying to give you clinical correlates to remember, this does have some importance. So the inferior mesenteric vein there is a is located just uh, lateral to the um, to the ligament trites at the beginning of the jejunum um, and the end of the duodenum as it sits right there. That's an area that you know has a large amount of venous drainage that goes back to it. Uh, but we want to divide that in many cases way up high, right just underneath the pancreas to get length to cause that entire left colon to reach down and reach into the rectum if you're doing a low anterior resection, for example. If we kind of take correlates, we always say that the lymphatic drainage follows that of the arterial supply. And so the lymphatic drainage comes into play, especially when we're talking about the um, about oncological resections and what also when it talks about anal disease. So lymphatic drainage of the anal canal, uh, again, it's important to understand what goes where and potentially as we talk about the different tumors. So much of the drainage of the anal canal and the rectum follows the arterial supply. The rectum itself drains through those superior rectal lymphatics, goes to the inferior mesenteric lymph nodes in the retroperitoneum, goes a little bit laterally to the internal iliac nodes, and those, again, they'll go along the middle and inferior rectal vessels through the ischial anal fossa. What it really comes into play is that that cutoff line, especially for, like, anal cancers. So, Kevin, where does lymph drainage low the dentate line go to? What part, what do we got to examine on those patients? And uh, let's say if you have an anal cancer lesion or a very, very low rectal lesion, we want to always examine rhymes with inguinal nodes. Uh, inguinal nodes. Yeah, very good. Very good. I didn't want to set you up for uh, for failure right there, So, but I know you knew that. So that, that area, lymph drainage below the dentate line drains to the inguinal nodes, and that's important in those lower ones. So we covered a little bit about the blood supply on the arterial side. We covered a little bit about the uh, the venous drainage right there, and about how it uh, you know how it skips certain areas depending on where the tumor is. Then again, what goes to the inguinal nodes? One of the other things that comes up all the times is how does the colon itself get its nutrients? What is the main nutrients of colonocytes, and how does that differ from the small intestine? So for whatever reason, they love this question, um, and it's a short-chain fatty acid might be the answer, but if they want more specifics, uh, the colon, it's a butrate is the uh, short-chain fatty acid. Then, of course, uh, for the small bowel, uh, glutamine is the primary source of uh, fuel. Yeah, butyrate, it's, uh, it's, that's, that's one that comes up all the time. And we're just going to round out the anatomy a little bit more, and we're going to talk about just a couple of helpful hints. Uh, something that comes up all the time is the difference between spaces and the difference between how that is named. The spaces are with abscesses, and then fistulas are always named in terms of the relationship to the sphincter. So the perianal and perirectal spaces, it's important to understand what is that deep postanal space and what is the boundaries of the deep anal space. Remember that the anal coccygeal ligament is typically the floor, and um, 
as you you talk about a little bit about the above you is the levators, and then laterally as you kind of go side to side, you wind yourself up in the ischial rectal fossas. That's kind of a classic area of when talking about what a horseshoe abscess is or a hemi horseshoe abscess. You got to know these different spaces. So anal coccygeal ligament is the base. The floor is the levators. Above the levators is a supralevator abscess. And then you get into that retroperitoneum, which is kind of a space that is a is a space where some of the tumors in the retrorectal area can occur, and that is a space that's not there all the time, but kind of comes up as things grow back there. That's a potential space as we talk about it, so important to understand. Okay, one of the things that come up all the time is the pudendal nerves. It's important to understand that the pudendal nerves, they arise from those caudal three sacral nerve roots. These are the nerves that cross the ischial tuberosity, so when we talk about a pudendal nerve block, your reference on the patient is that ischial tuberosity tends to be really deep right there, so you want to uh, get that area. And then it branches. It goes to the inferior rectal, the perineal, the dorsal nerves of the penis or clitoris. And these branches involve sensation from that particular area. Um, And also, again, they provide um, sensation, inferior rectal nerve, which is uh, a sensation to the anal canal, which also arrives from the, um, the branch of the pineal nerve, classically the inferior rectal nerve. And that delineation between what is somatic innervation and what is autonomic innervation is really bounded by the dentate line. And so that's an important anatomical structure to think about. <clears throat> the anal canal itself re- uh, receives innervation from both sympathetic and parasympathetic fibers. It's interesting, both of these inhibit the internal anal sphincter. The external sphincter relies on innervation from the perineal branch of that fourth sacral nerve and the inferior branch of the internal pudendal nerve. So those are just some things that come up. Again, uh, most importantly that you understand that there is a uh, there is a discrimination, but the pudendal nerve is kind of one of the major players in there, and then that dentate line, uh, understanding that. So, Kevin, we're going to switch gears now. We talked to set everybody out with a little bit about the anatomy of all these different regions. So let's talk about polyps, something that comes up. So kind of a classic question is, when do we screen? When do we screen for colon polyps? Uh, so generally, uh, 50 years old or uh, 10 years before uh, the youngest uh, family member with colon cancer. Or if there's a kind of a increased risk in your family, multiple people in your family with colon cancer, uh, a lot of times they'll say 40. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of times in terms of some of the ones... Um, uh, African-Americans uh, going down to 45 years old, um, those people that have you know, metabolic syndrome, there's a, there's a plug to potentially go to 45 years old, but a lot of these things lag behind uh, certain questions. So in general, if you're an average risk, 50 years old, uh, if you have somebody who's had a, um, a malignancy in the past, minus 10 off of that, and then go 10 years younger before that younger case if they're, for example, if they were 54 years old, you would say they would need to be screened at 44 years old. Now, for genetic type abnormalities in high risk populations, such as those people who have HNPCC or um, FAP, that's a lot different. And we're just talking about generalized, um, generalized screening recommendations for those. So, Kevin, the polyp itself gets a little bit confusing in terms of the terminology. So if I'm going to just throw, and you're going to give some high-yield points, I'm going to give you a type of polyp. You tell me a little bit about it. So first of all, hyperplastic. Okay, these are uh, very common, um, and they are a lot of times, uh, they can be flat and small, um, and they have no cancer risk. 
Yep, they're not. They're about eighty um, percent. This gets a little bit confusing. I know a lot of you who are very smart out there will talk about serrated polyps and this concept of serrated polyps. What makes a serrated polyp? Histology, uh, the histological definition. It kind of looks sawtooth or serrated appearance in the crypts, um, and they get kind of a, this accumulation of non-proliferating cells at the upper portion of the crypt. And when we talk about serrated polyp family, we talk about hyperplastic polyps, serrated adenomas. Sessile serrated adenomas or sessile serrated polyps, and then sessile serrated polyps with dysplasia, which, uh, you know, this terminology gets very kind of confusing. But 80% of those serrated polyps are these hyperplastic polyps. They're classically in the rectal sigmoid region. They're normally flat. They're usually less than five millimeters, and they're not considered to have a malignant potential. I, I do think it's important that we just kind of, I'm going to give you some high yield things on the other ones, although, again, this might be splitting a little bit of hairs, but. Just think about a lump of a family, some of which have problems and some of which don't. It's not uh, this, Our goal today is not to get into the weeds and a lot of things, but sessile serrated polyps themselves, they kind of get a little bit more extensive cell accumulation with abnormal proliferation. And these serrations extend all the way down to the base of the crypt. The crypts tend to be a little bit more dilated, but there's really no classic dysplasia. Now, this group encompasses about 15 to 20% of all serrated polyps. They tend to be a little bit bigger than those hyperplastic polyps. And these are the ones that can occur more proximally. So, again, the hyperplastic polyps can be in the rectal sigmoid region. These can get a little bit more in the proximal. They appear soft, flat, and oftentimes they're very difficult to distinguish from those hyperplastic polyps. If we switch gears to sessile serrated polyps with dysplasia, these in the past have been called mixed, collision polyps all over the map. Now, they are, when you look at them underneath, though, they're distinct areas of classic dysplasia. They're about 5% or less of all serrated lesions. Again, their, their appearance themselves are very similar to just normal sessile serrated polyps. They're sessile, they're flat, but these can be pedunculated. And it's oftentimes very difficult to distinguish these uh, from adenomas morphologically. The traditional serrated ad, uh, adenomas themselves, they can have dysplasia throughout the entire polyp. It's only 2% or less of all serrated polyps, and they're less, less than 1% of all colorectal polyps. <clears throat> and their, their appearance is all over the map. Small, big, single, occurring clumps. They can be white, pink, pale. Sometimes they're bronze in appearance. One of the kind of the key words that comes up sometimes is a mucus cap. They can tend to have a mucus cap. So it is important that we kind of keep the terminology in mind, but again, Routine run-of-the-mill hyperplastic polyps run in this sessile serrated polyp family, but they tend to be benign. Switching gears now, Kevin, the classic adenoma to carcinoma pathway, one of the ones that comes up is there's three different ones. Adenoma, tubular, and within the tubular adenoma, a villus adenoma, and then a tubular villus adenoma. Talk to me about those. So the tubular adenoma is kind of what you think of as your classic uh, pedunculated polyp. Um, and this is the ones that... Uh, when removed, we feel that we are uh, breaking the pathway to uh, cancer, essentially, as they start this and they can head down the uh, carcinoma pathway. So um, they have no, they have a neoplastic risk, but generally um, are non-cancerous themselves. And then you have the uh, villus adenoma, um, which is, uh, can, is sessile, like we were discussing many times and uh, these have a high cancer risk um, and these need to be uh, fully resected in order um, to rule out cancer and then was our last one the villus sessile adenoma sir is that yeah so so again so you have tubular adenoma tubular villus adenoma and then a villus adenoma and the tubular villus to the villus just depends on 
how much of a villus component it has to it. A couple of finer points that I just want to make sure that we understand for everybody out there. A tubular adenoma does not have to be pedunculated. They can be pedunculated, but depending on the size of them, they don't have to be in there. There's no question that the size does play a risk of malignancy. For example, if you have a less than a 5-millimeter polyp, the malignant potential in these is essentially negligible. If you go up to over a 4-centimeter polyp, you know, that there's some reports out there, uh, studies that go back to the 90s that talk about uh, if you take that out, what is the risk of cancer? And then that can be 75% or higher even in those particular ones. And so it is important to understand that and we don't have to get into the Haggett level. That's that's something that's not used as much anymore, but you'll still hear about it. But tubular versus tubular villus versus villus, it's on that continuum. Towards that adenoma, the carcinoma pathway, the villus adenoma, there's no question it tends to be more froth-like, more sessile, depending on the size of it. It does uh, have a higher malignancy rate. So within, Kevin, within villus, tubular villus, and tubular, which one has the highest malignancy rate with, associated with it? Uh, villus. Villus, good. And then size itself, as we talked about, is another determining factor in it. Let's talk a little bit about um, let's talk a little bit about polyps. And this is that concept of a malignant polyp. So you take out a polyp, and when they look at it underneath the um, microscope, they say, you know what? It's got a T1 cancer that's found in the polyp. What do we do about that? What are some things that we take into account that determine um, that determine a little bit, are you done or do you have to do another surgery? Yeah. So for the ab site, um, you're, it's going to have to meet all the criteria to be, to be completely done. Um, and the criteria that you're going to be looking for, you obviously want clear margins. So there can't be any cancer going through the cut edge of the specimen. Um, you want a well differentiated cancer. Um, so, um, that is important. And then always with all these things we talk about is vascular and lympho, um, lymphatic invasion. Um, so if there's any evidence of lymphovascular invasion, this would um, be a contraindication to just doing a polypectomy. Yeah, so if you go back to Haggett's study back for all of those guys who like to look a little bit about the history with the pathologist out by you, Kevin, at the University of Washington. Unfortunately, Kevin, do you know how you uh, passed away? I do. I do know that story, sir. It was very sad. He was shot by his own resident. Yeah, absolutely. So I, there was many days that I thought Kevin and Jason and John would come <laughs> after me. There was no question about that. But You're still not safe. Day, but, uh, no, I'm never safe. But uh, Dr. Haggett, pathologist, University of Washington, he published a gastroenterology in 1985 and talked about levels of the polyp. And just think about it. As a polyp grows out of the base uh, of the wall of the colon itself, the closer you're up to that, that head of the polyp, something that's way up away from there, that's a better prognosis versus the neck of the polyp or the stalk of the polyp and then kind of the, the bowel wall itself. So that as that submucosa can go up with the polyp, you can have a cancer that originates on those cells and invades into the submucosa, and that's how you get a malignant polyp. And depending on the depth of invasion in that stalk, whether it's in the head, the neck, the stalk, or the submucosa of the wall, really corresponds to the levels, level one being the head, level two being the neck, level three being the stalk, and then level four is all the way down kind of the submucosa of the ball wall. So for pedunculated polyps, what they looked at, and they basically said that if you had level zero through three, essentially that, that was a pretty favorable outcome in most of the patients, but level four, they ended up having recurrence of disease or they had a lymphatic metastases and you need to do something about those lesions. 
And so that's kind of a classic one. And then when you talk about the fact that's agate, and then when you talk about just in general things about a T1 cancer that discriminates it to say, this is fine to just take care of it with the scope versus you need a formal resection. Again, margins are clear. You want it greater than two millimeters. You don't want it to be uh, poorly differentiated. It's, it, you have to have it well differentiated. You don't want lymphovascular invasion. And when certain criteria met that Kevin talked a little bit about, you can do a polypectomy alone. But if they're not, that's somebody that you may want to consider doing surgery. Now, if we kind of take that over and talk about flat polyps other than pedunculated polyps, this is where they kind of did a nice study um, out, of the, out of Mayo Clinic and talked a little bit about um, the depth of submucosal invasion. And many of you will hear kind of this SM1, SM2, and SM3. And essentially, what they did is they took a look at these different levels, whether the submucosa was invaded to one-third, two-thirds, or a full three-thirds level, and said, what is the risk of lymph nodes that are positive or their chance of local recurrence? A couple of different studies that are about there that take a look at this, and essentially, if it was SM1, only one-third of the lesion, it was fine, because the risk of lymph node or local recurrence is very low and could be done alone. But as you increase the SM2 and for sure level 3, Essentially, what you can do is you probably need to go uh, colectomy uh, on those particular patients. So, again, all we're talking about is the difference between flat polyps or sessile polyps and those pedunculated polyps. So, Kevin, the other thing that comes up all the time, it's kind of a favorite, is that adenoma-carcinoma pathway. And as you go to normal, to an adenoma, and then to candor. The classic England Journal of Medicine article in 2000. And what we're really talking about is how you go from normal epithelium to hyperproliferation to an early adenoma, intermediate adenoma, late adenoma, and then cancer. And so the genes themselves oftentimes kind of fit in and where do they fit in the pathway? Which one of these occur early and what do they occur late? So, Kevin, I'm going to give you different ones. I'm going to say APC, KRAS, P53, 18Q. Which one is the first one and which one is the one that occurs typically last in that sequence of uh, genetic abnormalities? What is that? So I believe it's APC that gets the, the whole pathway going. And then I think the final checkpoint that crosses it over is uh, P53. Yeah, 18Q loss. So yeah. essentially, so when we're putting these in order, what we talk about is normal epithelium to hyperproliferation. That's where that APC loss goes. Then in that hyperproliferation phase, oftentimes what you see is a COX-2 overexpression, leading us into that early adenoma sequence. Now to go from an early adenoma to an intermediate adenoma, that's where classically you get that KRAS mutation that can occur. So APC, COX-2, KRAS. Then as we go to a late adenoma, that's where that P53 mutation occurs. And then finally that 18Q as we go into cancer. Again, there's a lot more in-depth that you can read about this. Uh, it's important to understand what is an APC, um, what, what APC loss can potentially lead to for the genetic defect in terms of you know, APC and what chromosome occurs and all that other things. But in terms of the actual sequence of events, APC, COX-2, KRAS, P53, 18Q, that's the classic one. You'll see lots of different diagrams as we go on from there. Kevin, you had mentioned earlier a little bit about what to resect and what blood vessels you're going to take in performing a colectomy for cancer. So I'm going to put that cancer in specific places and you tell me what you're going to do. First of all, the cecum. Uh, so the cecum, this is, they may try and get you on the test and get you to do an ileocecectomy uh, for a cecal cancer, and that is not the correct answer. You want to do a, a formal uh, right hemicolectomy uh, where you're taking the uh, right colic artery along with the iliocolic artery. 
Okay, and then let's put it uh, in the right colon somewhere. What involves a, a classic uh, right colon resection? What are you taking? Uh, the, the right colon resection, again, will be the uh, same blood vessels um, as we just discussed. It'll be the right colic and the iliocolic. Yeah, and then you want to take that right branch of the middle colic, right? So you want to take that classic right branch of the middle colic right there. So if you take something that's now at the hepatic flexure, no longer will a classic right colectomy take care of it. And again, many people will also say in a sequel lesion to perform a formal right colectomy, you need to take that right branch of the of the middle colic right there. So in a uh, hepatic flexure, can we do just the right colectomy alone? Uh, no, uh, you want to do, no. do an extended, extended right hemicolectomy. Yeah, so what does that involve, Kevin? Uh, that involves additionally taking uh, the middle colic uh, artery. Yeah, so unlike taking the right branch of the middle colic, you want to take the middle colic at its root, which is essentially taking out the middle colic base, and then you're going to remove both the right and the left branches along, again, with the right colic branch and the, uh, and the iliac colic branch. And Kevin, what portions of the colon does that remove? Uh, that essentially will take out your whole transverse colon because that's the blood. That's the primary blood supply to the transverse colon. Yeah, excellent. And then you know when they stick it at the splenic flexure, there's a little bit of a debate out there. What's easier to perform? Do you do a subtotal colectomy in these patients, removing all the right and the transverse, um, and then you know remove the the left portion of the colon and perform an iliosigmoid or iliorectal anastomosis, or do you do a formal left? So Kevin, on a formal left colectomy. What branches are we removing on a formal left? Uh, the branches of a formal left, you're going to take the left colic and the sigmoidal arteries. Yeah, so that's that IMA that you're going to take, and that IMA will take out that sigmoid arteries, the left colic, and then a formal left, you take that left branch of the middle colic. That's sometimes, especially in the splenic flexure, that's hard, right? That's sometimes hard to get that transverse colon to reach all the way down, and that's why some people decide I'm going to go the other way and have the small bowel reach down. <laughs> And then if you take out the rectum and you talk about rectal lesions, you know, classically in a sigmoid colon, a lot of people with cancer will take out a sigmoid colectomy and a little bit of the descending colon, once again, removing that IMA as a base, whether or not, depending on the exact location, if you're going to preserve that left colic branch. Um, uh, but Kevin, what does an APR, I know classically there's lots of things but let's t let me tell you i'm going to tell you you're taking an apr you're performing that abdominal perineal resection what's coming out with an abdominal perineal resection uh, so an abdominal perineal resection uh, you approach it from both uh, intra-abdominally and from uh, the perineum uh, so from you're, from the perineum you're going to be taking uh, the um, anal sphincter the, and then dissecting up onto the rectum um, and then the rectum um, and the sigmoid colon uh, will be removed in the APR. Yeah, so again, just think about it as that everything below the, you know, kind of the sacral palmitary, all, all that's going, the sigmoid colon is classically going. You're going to divide your IMA, get all of those lymph nodes in this is where that with any of the rectal cancers, no matter if you're doing an APR or low anterior section or an ultra low, lots of different terminology out there. But just for overall generalizations, what we're thinking about doing again is we're going to take the, the lesion itself, the malignancy, as well as the surrounding lymph node package, which is that mesorectum. And that's that classic term, total mesorectal excision or a TME that's staying in that avascular plane 
right in front of the sacrum, taking that all the way down, and then with an abdominal perineal resection, removing all sphincter muscles, and we're bringing up an end colostomy. Conversely, when you have a lower anterior resection, you still, again, you want to take out that total mesorectal package, but you're taking it most likely down all the way to the level of the vaders. You're leaving the anal canal intact, and then you're bringing the descending colon down, and you're making an anastomosis. So kind of just... It's the classic principles as well as the colon where you're doing, you can have a complete mesocolic excision where you're taking out all those lymph nodes along the blood supply of the colon that we just talked about. You're just extending that down into the pelvis itself, taking out the blood supply, the lymph node package, and then debating, can you get it all out with preserving intestinal continuity or do you have to take everything out for good oncological resection? The classic question that can come up sometimes is... um, for a chemotherapy, uh, for uh, a uh, when to do a transanal resection, is that okay? You got a low rectal lesion. What are the what are the classic ones that you can do a transanal resection? In the past, historically, you could say T1 and T2. We found out that T2 lesions are associated with a very high in uh, risk of recurrence. So outside of kind of specific patient problems, like they're either really sick and they can't tolerate a big surgery or anything like that, and outside of some of the newer treatments, you're going to give a P2 lesion that has chemotherapy and radiation therapy that's a little bit beyond this, um, uh, a little bit beyond the, um, the focus of what we're doing here today. But in, in general, T1 lesions, those that have good prognostic factors, well differentiated, you got good margins. We're classically looking for one centimeter margins that you have um, no lymphovascular invasion. Those same prognostic factors that we talked about with the polyp extend to those uh, early rectal cancer lesions right there. So Kevin, chemotherapy, two different things that we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about, about chemotherapy for colon cancer, and then um, at least in the United States, which may differ from different areas of the world, but when would you give neoadjuvant chemo and radiation therapy for rectal cancer. Let's start with chemotherapy for colon cancer first. Uh, So the vast majority of uh, chemotherapy, which is given in an adjuvant therapy, which means after surgery for uh, colon cancer, is going to be um, in patients with stage 3 or 4 colon cancer, which means they have uh, positive lymph nodes or distant metastatic disease. Um, so those are the stage three and four patients are the patients that are always going to get chemotherapy. And that's going to be your full FOX, which is your uh, 5-FU, your leucovorin, and your oxaliplatin. <laughs> okay. And uh, let's, let's switch to rectal cancer itself. So when we talk about rectal cancer, um, so re- what, uh, where, where are we going with that? Um, so rectal cancer... And I may be oversimplifying it, but I, I think of it a lot as similar managed, initially at least, like esophageal cancer. So once you get the uh, submucosal invasion of tumor or you're above a stage two, so basically anything that's not a small T1 cancer is going to get uh, both chemotherapy and radiation therapy before resection. Okay, and so what 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 constitutes a stage two and a stage three lesion? Or just think about in general, do you have lymph nodes that are positive, or do you have a more uh, more locally advanced type uh, lesion that's there um, in terms of lymph node positivity on the clinical staging? And again, clinical staging isn't uh, ideal. You do always have the risk of potentially over-treating if you saw a lymph node that you classified as clinically positive. Um, that is at risk of doing that. So. Uh, we're going to switch very quickly 
Um, any other high points on that one, Kevin? Um, and just the one thing for uh, rectal cancer is you need to, the staging is a little different than the rest of them, is you need to at least have a indirectal ultrasound, or I think more commonly nowadays, an MRI of the pelvis to get that T staging. Yeah, so standard staging, think about local regional staging, checking any tumor markers, and then metastatic disease. So in general, your local staging for rectal cancer involves an MRI or an endorectal ultrasound. Then you're going to stage metastatically for CT of chest, abdomen, pelvis. Then you get to get your blood markers, which is classically CEA. We'll touch very quickly on some high points in terms of FAP and the Lynch syndromes because the reality is this is an extensive talk in itself. So remember, FAP, there's different variants in it, attenuated FAP, MYH, Churko syndrome, Gardner syndrome, all sorts of things. These encompass classically about 1% of all colorectal cancers with sporadic colorectal cancer being 65 to 85%. Hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, now more commonly referred to as Lynch syndrome, is about 3 to 5. Um, the familial type syndromes, 10 to 30%, and rare syndromes is about 1%. The cardinal manifestation of FAP is the development of greater than 100 adenomatous polyps one or more, which essentially assuredly will go on to cancer if not removed. Your risk of cancer is essentially that. Kevin, autosomal dominant or autosomal uh, recessive? Uh, dominant. It is dominant. In early age of onset, classically about 16 years, um, the, the classic um, colorectal cancer onset is less than 40. Um, and it's important to understand that about one in five will have a de novo mutation rate where they won't have a prior family history. I think that's important. Lots of extraclonic manifestations, some of which are benign, such as the upper gastrointestinal adenomas, but you also have osteomas. You have the congenital hypertrophy of the retinal pigmentum epithelium, or chirpy, as some people call it. Um, epidermoid cysts, fundic polyps, desmoids, dental abnormalities. Of all of those, the one that occurs the most common is the upper GI adenomas. That's that's the classic one. The ones that are malignant, duodenal and periampillary cancers, thyroid cancer, pancreatic cancer, the children's cancer that can occur, the hepatoblastoma. You can also have gastric cancers and CNS tumors. Remember, desmoid tumors are a problem in these, but you know historically they are classified as benign, but we all know that they're problems. The APC gene is the FAP. Kevin, for APC gene, do you know the chromosome that it's located? Uh, number five. Yeah, 5Q21. The key gatekeeper gene in colorectal carcinogenesis. And then if you take a look on that gene, we know that there's clusters uh, in different codons, hot spots that can occur that can cause you to say, do you have a severe, po severe polyposis if it's between 1250 and 1464? Attenuated FAP is at different regions, chirpy, desmoids. All of those ones are kind of, you can take a little bit more of a look at. FAP, we talked about the polyposis is in the second or third decade with a mean age of onset is about 16. Patients present oftentimes with crampy, bleeding, changing their bowel habits. They get a colonoscopy and they get there. Uh, a very important point, Kevin, FAP screening. When should we begin uh, screening for FAP? Uh, I mean, these patients, uh, I think even by the age of 12, are uh, beginning to get screened, and they, they need to get their uh, colectomy by the age of 20 is kind of the classic question. Yeah, and we also want to make sure that we follow these people, and you know, there's genetic testing stuff, but annual flexible sigmoidoscopy, genetic counseling, EGD and thyroid screening, ultrasound, ophthalmologic examination in children, and, and we could talk about lots of different things, but suffice it to say you want to get that out of there. You can get it out of there with having... You know, a, a pouch, you can take out everything and give them a permanent bag. Or, you know, there is some select cases that we don't have to go in the weeds, but if the rectum is relatively spared or can be taken care of endoscopically, you can t potentially take out the total colon. 
leave the rectum in place and do a um, do an iliorectal anastomosis. Um, upper GI polyposis, funded gland polyps are the classic one present in eating in 90% of patients. Gastric adenomas in 10% of patients. Then duodenal adenomas can be very high. Uh, in duodenal adenomas, the second cause, uh, leading cause of death uh, in these patients. Gardner's itself is with epidermoid tumors, desmoids, and osteomas. Turcos is with the brain tumors, and two-thirds of turcos have an APC mutation. Um, attenuated FAP is classically less than 100 polyps. Colorectal cancer at greater than age 50, the polyps tend to be more proximal to the splenic flexure, um, and you have a couple of different genetic types that can occur. MYH, or the MAP, is an attenuated form of polyposis with kind of polyp phenotypes that vary in number of histology. They tend to be less severe. Small parts are with greater than 100 polyps, but not. This one's autosomal recessive. That's the one that kind of distinguishes a little bit more. And it's a mutation of the human MUTYH homolog gene. Uh, you should refer these patients to geneticists. And again, treatment can be surgery, such as a total abdominal colectomy, and then following the surve- uh, surveillance. Desmoids themselves, locally invasive, they don't metastasize. And found about 15% of patients with FAP, they're uh, classically the third common cause of death in FAP. They contribute to death by other causes. They, they again, they form just these large growing tumors, rapidly growing. They encompass the vessels. The peak incidence is after age 50. They'll occur in the small bowel, mesentery, lots of different ways that they try to talk about treating them, anti-estrogens, radiation therapy, different ones that are out there. It's been very difficult. Salindac, androns, I talked about some um, tamoxifen. And there's been some reports out there with anti-sarcoma therapy, but just when you think about it, think about the fact that in general, you know, can you resect it classically in the abdominal wall? If it's located in the root of the mesentery, that's something you don't want to go after. One, one thing, sir, yeah, the, the answer I've seen on the test is, well, A, they're going to try and get you to resect everything and uh, or at the base of the, the mesentery, like you said, and that is something that you will not resect. And then, because it, it is not uh, metastatic in nature, it's just locally invasive. But then the other thing is uh, the Solendac has been the classic answer still, that it, which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory um, for, for the desmoids. And the one quick point about the adenomas, the second most common cause of death in FAP, I've seen that come up a lot on the ab site. And, um, and then if you are getting your screening EGDs. A lot of the times they say it by 25, you need to have a screening EGD. If they see dysplasia in any of those biopsies of any of the polyps in the duodenum, uh, that and they have FAP, they need to get a, a Whipple. So. Okay, let's switch to Lynch real quick. Uh, again, a lot of these things are, you know, they're, they're, they are very extensive talks in and of themselves. And you can read a little bit more about them, but Lynch itself, named after Professor Henry T. Lynch. Um, you know, it, the family G, 1913, updated in there they, uh, by Drs. Lynch and Crush that demonstrated kind of you know, what we know as more of the Lynch syndrome that we know about today. So, dominant or recessive, Kevin? Uh, Lynch syndrome is dominant. Dominant. It's a defect in the mismatch repair genes. These are the MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, PMSA2. Um, you know, causes a DNA buildup of the microsatellites. And when large buildup occurs, you get microsatellite instability to that scene. But classically, these tumors are right colon. Remember, this is a non polyposis. So, right colon, poorly differentiated. They tend to be mucinous. Oftentimes, it's less metastases and a better prognosis stage per stage. But again, these are uh, these are the polyp to cancer rate is a classically in three years. And 
the, the question that comes in all the time is testing. How do you identify these patients and how do you go for them? This is where the Bethesda criteria, the revised Bethesda criteria, and the Amsterdam, Amsterdam criteria can come in. Um, it's important to understand um, that, that that a lot of these have good and the bad ones. Bethesda themselves, as, as we talk about colorectal cancer less than 50, you know, uh, Lynch syndrome-associated tumors, colorectal, endometrial, gastric, ovarian, pancreas, ureter, renal, pelvis, biliary, brain, small bowel, lots of different things that go in there. It's classically that colorectal cancer with MSI um, high-related histology in patients that are less than 60 years old, uh, that, that classic colorectal cancer with, you know, more first or second degree relatives with Lynch syndrome related type cancers that come and then you go and get them tested and this is where that testing occurs for MSI and IHC that goes in there. Uh, we, we don't have time really or, or the degree to go into the, um, the revised minimum Amsterdam criteria. Suffice it to say you can look up there. That's where it goes into and there's many different prediction models that, that are out there. The one cancer that is probably a little bit more predominant is that endometrial cancer in age less than 50. Um, and even in endometrial cancer less than 50, some of the new NCCN panel recommends that this single criteria is one that you should evaluate a patient for Lynch in and of themselves. But but think about that. So uh, colon cancer itself, you know, looking for this, Kevin, if you have a family criteria, uh, how do we screen for these patients? What do we want to do? When does the colonoscopy, unlike the early stage lesions, you know, get a flex sig at age 12 or puberty, that type of thing with FAP in, uh, in Lynch syndrome, when do we do it? I, I think it's in the early 20s if you have yeah, a strong history. Absolutely. So colonoscopy at age 20 to 25 or two to five years prior than the earliest colon cancer if this was under age 25 and then you go one to two year intervals. Um, for endometrial and ovarian cancer, um, you know, you want to make sure that you um, that that you think about that, although the evidence to support endometrial screening or ovarian screening, whether it be through ultrasound or CA-125, I guess is debatable. Um, EGD with extended duodenoscopy at three to five years, starting at age 30 to 35 in patients. Uh, classically, they, they will even say Asian descent, but again, for a lot of people, you want to think about that and kind of work that in there. Ural epithelial cancer or urothelial cancer, considering annual EUA starting at 20 to 25 years. Um, think about CNS cancer, pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, although these don't have necessarily any distinct ones. Uh, that, that's the classic thing that comes up. And then, you know, whether you want to do a total abdominal colectomy or whether a segmental colectomy in Lynch is warranted, you know, classically, the classic answer is a subtotal colectomy with a iliorectal and understanding that there's always a risk of developing recurrent cancer in the rectum itself if the lesion doesn't involve the rectum. If it is involved in the rectum, can you just do a proctectomy alone or do a total proctocolectomy? Classically, it's a total proctocolectomy, but there's some debate out there. The goal is not to split hairs, and there's a lot more that we could spend a lot of time on. So, Okay, so <laughs> lots of things going on, on here right now. So um, we're going to touch and finish up on a couple of very small uh, type things. So Kevin, uh, just sigmoid volvulus versus a sigmovolvulus. Sigmoid volvulus, um, uh, classically when you think about a sigmoid volvulus on these, on these patients, um, Sigmoid volvulus. What, what type of uh, what type of patient um, are you are you dealing with? So generally, this is the um, demented elderly lady um, in the nursing home that has chronic uh, constipation that comes in with a distended, uh, painful abdomen. 
Yeah, so the clinical features of volvulus really depend on this degree of obstruction viability. You know, there's a wide range from chronic constipation to acute obstruction and perforation. Classically, there are constipation, fever, emesis. Um, physical examination is a little bit uh, all over the map on these patients. You know, they can have mass, blood per rectum, they can have peritonitis, whether or not they have a leukocytosis or anything that goes on there. Cecovolvulus itself is, tends to be even a little bit more nonspecific. Patients classically have intermittent cramping, abdominal pain, fag pain, occasionally emesis. Uh, lots will give a, a chronic history of constipation in there. The key component in a lot of this thing is to have a, um, a high degree of suspicion in there. Sigmoid volvulus, classically described as the bent inner tube or coffee bean sign with dilated air fluid bowel arising from the left lower quadrant extending towards the diaphragm. That's that's kind of one of the one of the ones. Uh, volvulus in the cecal location classically demonstrates a large gas filled kind of a house for colon extends from the pelvis in the right lower quadrant and then goes into the uh, on the upper abdomen. On CT scan, a whirl sign you will see, and that's spiraled loops of collapsed bowel. You see the twist in the mesentery. That's a that's a good one. If you give rectal contrast for sigmoid volvulus, all the time you'll see a bird's beak sign. That's at the distal site of torsion. That's what the bird's beak is, is through contrast. It's important to understand that. Um, in general, um, if you can detorse a sigmoid colon or a uh, cecal the detorsion is much better on the left side of the colon. Think about it, it's harder to torse on the right, although people will do it. You would ideally like to detorse it, allow it to cool down, and then you do a resection in the setting. In many cases, on the right side or a cecovolvulus, you will just um, you'll just take them for a right colectomy. Kevin, there's a couple of different types of cecovolvulus. The classic one that turns, and then the other one that folds up on itself. What is that one called that folds up on itself? Uh, that's the bascule. Yeah, that's a cecovascule. In general, remember, cecovolvulus and sigmoid volvulus, they should be eventually resected. That's that's the key to these particular patients. And, and I would just look at, I would go and Google an x-ray picture because that's how these will come up. They'll have an x-ray and then they'll ask what the treatment is. And so you have to know the difference in, like like Dr. Seal discussed, of the differences between the appearance of a sigmoid and cecovolvulus. Some, some high-yield things we're going to switch on differentiated UC from Crohn's. Which one of two? Kevin, I'm going to give you a couple of things. You tell me UC or Crohn's. <laughs> Mouth to anus. Crohn's. Only in the colon. UC. Yeah, in the rectum, I should say. Starting at the dentine, working its way backwards. And 15% of patients will have a backwash ileitis, but classically colon and rectum. Uh, potentially or theoretically um, curable with surgery. Uh, UC. UC. Operate for complications. Crohn's. Yeah, Crohn's. Obviously, you'd operate with complicated. If UC perforates, you can operate on that okay. too. But classically, we operate for complication for Crohn's. Fistulizing, phlegmatous, non-responsive medications, uh, you know, failure to grow or growth retardation. Um, uh, and again, so you want to just do so. The classic operation for UC is a total proctocolectomy with ileostomy versus total proctocolectomy with pouch um, or even a coke pouch. Um, for UC, it's a segmental colectomy or a small bowel resection. The most common place that occurs is in the ileocecal region, so you do an ileocecectomy. That's the classic one. And then perianal disease, if you see fissure or deep ulcerations or fistulas in the perianal region, which one does that occur with? That would be Crohn's. Yeah, Crohn's. And then, and then when you take a look and you have these linear, deep ulcerations and, and everything that occur um, with 
almost like a uh, cobblestoning. These, that's the one thing. That's Crohn's and ulcerations. That's what Crohn's looks like endoscopically. Um, uh, if you do, um, so the, the, the other question that may come up is ulcerative colitis has extraintestinal manifestations. Which ones approve, improve, or do not improve after colectomy? The ones that do not improve? Uh, the ones that do not improve is the uh, PSC or sclerosing cholangitis and uh, the ankylosing spondylitis, the spine problems. The ones that do improve with that? Uh, generally, their ocular manifestations, um, their arthritis, and the anemia will improve. Good. And then we're just going to end up a little bit with Ogilvy's, and we'll finish up there. And one th quick thing on uh, prolapse. So Ogilvy's, Kevin, th there's different ways that you can treat it. Obviously, Ogilvy's is a functional or a pseudo-obstruction. You can treat it medically, endoscopically, or surgically. What's the medication that you can treat it with? Uh, neostigmine. Yeah, I encourage everybody to look at that article. I think it made a New England Journal article, and if my memory serves right, and I'm sure many of you would tell me I'm wrong, there's only like 10 patients that were in that particular article. Very rare does something like that occur, but look it up for yourselves and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and then if you endoscopically, you go in there, you do a, uh, you know, you do a nice endoscopic decompression with or without a, um, uh, a rectal tube, and then you're going to correct that and the electrolyte abnormalities, lay off the narcotics, and hopefully these patients will get better alone. And then ultimately, if you do need to have surgery, you resect that area. Kevin, running through just very last with rectal prolapse, remember differentiating rectal prolapse from hemorrhoids. Rectal prolapse is full thickness. Um, it causes lots of different functional problems such as fecal incontinence and constipation. Females, chronic straining, you know, it can occur. 30% of females have had no kids, so it's not just having kids that causes it to be there. Two different types of operations. You can take it from above or below. When it's below, it's you know, the, whether you do a DeLorme, which is not all the ball layers, and you do a PEXI more than anything, or an Altmeyer, which is a, really should be called a perineal rectosigmoidectomy, which is a classical full thickness resection and handsome colonial anastomosis, and then taking it from above. Whether you take it from above and you do a PEXI, it's the classic one, it's a rectopexy, where you mobilize the colon and PEXI it to the sacral promontory. Whether you do an adosigmoid resection, why would you add a sigmoid resection? If they're really, really constipated. And you see that huge, large, redundant colon. There's a little bit of a problem in here in the fact that many of these patients are constipated anyway. So who do you do it or who you do not do it on? That can be a problem. But uh, LAR is not a classic one you want to do. You don't want to do an LAR for these patients. You want to do a PEXI in those patients. So, okay. That is your high-yield colorectal facts. There's lots more that we could cover, and maybe we'll get an opportunity to, to do it uh, in one more in the future. But, Kevin, thanks so much for... Uh, for meeting with us this morning and uh, any other uh, high yield points that you want to brief on? Uh, nope. I think we covered a wide range in a short amount of time. Awesome. Well, to all the listeners out there, good luck. And remember, this is not just for app site review. This is just for high yield points for rounds for everything. And it's a, just a little bit more about how cool the colon, the rectum, and the anus are dominate the day.